Welcome to episode 170 of the Energy Talks podcast. I'm Markham Hislop, the climate, climate and energy journalist and publisher of Energy Media. Now, in the last, oh, three, four months, we've had three other interviews, two of them on the podcast and one of them on our, our uh, video interview that you can find on our YouTube channel uh, about the business case for BC LNG. And at this point, we're running two to one against. Well, today I'm going to be interviewing Paul Sullivan, who is the Senior VP for Global LNG for the engineering firm Worley. And he is going to even up those odds. He's going to talk about the pro <laughs> business case for BC LNG. So welcome to the interview, Paul. Thanks very much, Mark. I'm delighted to be here and uh, hopefully provide some some other view on uh, on this uh, this uh, at times contentious topic. Well, indeed, and let me just summarize for uh, for our listeners. Um, we had uh, Clark William Derry of the Institute for Energy Economics and Financial Analysis, who who said there is no the economics don't work. Then we had Professor Andy Hiroff from Simon Fraser University, who had written a paper arguing that the uh, further LNG development uh, requires so many subsidies uh, that it just isn't worth it. And plus, the BC government will have a very hard time making its emissions targets. Uh, but then on the other hand, we had Dr. Chris Bataille, who's an economic modeler, who said it's not the best business case, but under certain circumstances, it certainly can uh, be economic. Uh, so that's kind of that's the lay of the land, Paul, uh, in terms of uh, our previous uh, interviews. So let's, I want to ask you the biggest question, I think, that came out of all of those, and that's around capital expenditures. Because most often the comparison is to the U.S. Gulf Coast, down where you live in Houston, and which is a very well-developed petrochemical and refining complex. It's very, it, uh, it helps to keep down the capital costs Whereas in uh, Kitimat on the northwest uh, coast of British Columbia, it's not nearly as well developed and capital costs of construction infra constructing infrastructure are much higher. What's your take on that? You're, you're quite right. And uh, I'm sure that your previous speakers raised this as well, that uh, constructing in uh, northern BC is certainly not the equivalent to constructing in uh, the U.S. Gulf Coast. Less resources, more, more uh, incentives for labor to go there and work, uh, perhaps at times uh, slightly more trying conditions. Productivity during the winter can be low. So indeed, I'm not in any way going to sort of push back against that and paint a fairy tale picture of construction in northern BC. However, the the issues are that over many years and working on many, many uh LNG liquefaction and import terminals, but particularly liquefaction, <clears throat> I have uh, managed to sort of run the gambit of anything from anything from uh, stick building to fully modernized projects, and that's really where the economics lie. Well, do exp uh, do tell um, the modularized modularized projects caught my attention. Uh, please explain that. Well, what it is, is that one of the largest costs 
associated with projects in northern BC is labor and the accommodation of labor and the proper uh, and the the proper sort of uh, care and attention to the labor force, and that involves extremely high indirect costs for the labor involved. So the labor itself may be receiving only similar salaries to or similar wages to that down the US Gulf Coast, but it's the carrying cost for their welfare and for the, you know, for uh, their movement in and out of the project that adds adds the unit cost to labor. So take taking a, a a typical, if there is such a thing as a typical LNG plant, but shall we say an LNG plant where we are looking at uh, say two trains and a train is just one process unit. And if you have two of them together, it makes it more uh, economic from a CapEx point of view. And most projects are built around a two train project. And if those two trains are nominally 5 million ton a year trains um, in, in any environment, the, uh, the, the cost of labor within those will probably run to somewhere between in, in in normal circumstances, not in northern BC, we'll probably run into in the region of sub twenty percent, so somewhere between sixteen and twenty percent of the cost. In northern BC, with the exact same equipment, the exact same skills for a, a, a stick built, which means there's uh, all the equipment is brought in and erected and piped and and wired, you know, uh, individually. In those in those ones there, you could be up at. Uh, going on Australian base, uh, isolated Australian projects, perhaps up to over 25, maybe even up to 30% of the cost. So as you can imagine, that is a massive differentiator in terms of the capital cost of installation. So we put our minds to it maybe 10, 10, 14 years ago, I think when we did, as early we did the first modularized plants in Australia, we looked at taking component uh, systems out of the process train uh, putting them within a steel structure, a module, as they would refer to it, and building in a in a production yard in a lower cost, a lower cost in a, a Thailand, a Singapore, um, and building there in ideal conditions because you're not dealing with site conditions; you're dealing with more or less a not so much a workshop but a yard situation where labor can very be very efficiently used. Uh, where the labor is relatively less expensive, even in the first place than previously. Downside is the fact you've got this large steel structure, which costs you money, but that is small scale by comparison to the saving on, on labor and installation. So we put these together in modules. You know, originally we were looking at sort of two to 3,000 ton modules. We can build up to five or 6,000 ton modules now. And that those units are then put on a ship brought to the site, the uh, foundations have been prepare, prepared, they are put on the site and then they are wired up, uh, plumbed up, if you want to put it simply as that. And, uh, and, and all of these hours have been transferred out to lower cost centers, on top of which you're able to build the modules while you are doing the preparation for them in in the location. So it shortens schedule another part of cost. Okay, Paul, well, that's very interesting because we see that modular approach being proposed for nuclear plants, for instance, and, uh, and I, that's the first one that comes to mind for me. Um, so are you suggesting that the, uh, and it sounds like 
that approach has already been tried in successfully in Australia. Is that correct? That's correct. So, it's also been tried uh, in, uh, on the LNG plants, partially in the U.S. Gulf Coast. Uh, what, what complicated and complex portions of the process plant and the gas treatment plant will be modularized. And then a rather more simple uh, surrounding, what we call the outside the battery limit, inside the battery limit being the actual process, outside the battery limit, we may have other work which goes on there, other mechanical equipment, items of that sort. And we might we might well stick bill those because it really doesn't pay to uh, go to the trouble of manufacturing them in another location. But the, the important point for our considerations in in Canada, in Northern Canada, is that we've taken it a step further in the fact of identifying everything that can be modularized because we are looking at isolated locations. I I headed up Steelhead LNG on Vancouver Island before the project failed to fly. And we were looking at the ultimate, I suppose, in modularization, which is floating LNG. And this is where you go to the yard in, in Asia or wherever, and you not only build the modules there, but you load them on a floating structure, not a ship. It, it's a, it may have the characteristics of a ship, <clears throat> but it's basically just a large barge. And when I say large, we're talking about something 300 meters long, maybe 60 to 70 meters wide, and having a, a depth of maybe 40 meters. So th these are large barges, but they're relatively simple structures. So what we do there is we, manu we manufacture, we uh, fabricate the modules, we place them on a, a, a marine constructed barge and we float them across the ocean <clears throat> and bring them into the location where they are set up on a permanent mooring. Um, and what that does is it reduces even further the amount of onshore construction that needs to be carried out. And I suppose from an environmental point of view, it, 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 it reduces the impact on, on the onshore portion of, of the land, which can be quite an important issue in relation to First Nations and, and, and other stakeholders. So we can minimize that uh, to the extent that we can probably cut the onshore working down to in terms of the labor, as I was talking about before, and the logistics of getting materials there. We can cut it down to maybe 10 or 15% of the overall cost of an onshore construction. When I interviewed Clark Williams Derry, uh, he mentioned that the cost in Northern BC, and he was talking about LNG Canada. So it's the big, yep. listeners who may not be aware, it's a big $40 billion uh, plant uh, headed up by a consortium. And I think it's being run by a consortium headed up by Shell Canada, uh, by Shell. Mm -hmm. uh, and <clears throat> Uh, he said that the capex uh, for LNG Canada was twice that of the U.S. Gulf Coast. Does, does that sound reasonable to you? It, it it does in those figures, but the the difficulty frequently when we work um, when we work on the basis of publicly available information on projects is that all of the project costs are rolled up. That is not just CapEx cost. That may be the cost of acquisition of the land. It may be the cost of the you know, very extensive early works and early studies, the feed contracts and so forth, all rolled into a cost. Whereas you know, when I, when I look at CapEx, I like to look at the, uh, the actual 
EPC contract, which goes out there, excluding owner's costs, because the owners can be either light touch or they can be extremely involved. So the difference there might be an owner's team of 25 people or it might be an owner's team of 200 people. And we have worked on both of those concepts in the past. So I like to keep it to the capex. And I don't know what the capex is for uh, for Shell Canada, or not for Shell Canada, I should say, but LNG Canada. But I do know what the, uh, the relative costs of projects on the Gulf Coast might be, of other international projects, because I've worked on them. And you know, where I, I have to use publicly available information, obviously, because any confidential information would not be it would not be appropriate to sort of breach NDAs, except maybe for older projects, which I built in the past, which are now, you know, 10, 15 years in operation. So it's not relevant to to really <laughs> discuss their capital cost. But we were, in my opinion, our our. Uh, our business in a standard location. So U.S. Gulf Coast, say, um, maybe uh, you know somewhere like Trinidad, somewhere which had good access to skilled labor, good access to reasonable logistics and the like. We were looking at a capex figure there in recent years of under a thousand dollars a ton. So you multiply that, uh, you make that billions when you when you put millions of tons per year. So the you know the issue is that you know that situation in in uh, for uh, LNG Canada would be slightly different because we are in the middle of Canada. We are up in Kitimat, fairly isolated location. A lot of logistics in getting uh, you know both materials and modules to to the site and uh, and erecting them there. Also, you know, you, you have to look, the one big thing that differentiates one site from another over the years when I've been putting these together is the geological conditions and the marine conditions. We can we can reckon that from the ground up, once you get the foundations in, once you get the marine uh, um, terminal in there, the rest is above ground and it's a more predictable outcome and cost. But uh, I mean, the difference difference between a bad site, like a very poor soil site, which has to be piled for everything, and a fairly sort of stable, you know, hard ground site, maybe not necessarily rock, but hard material on top, uh, can be the difference between the the uh, um, found the preparation for foundations being maybe five percent of the project, and maybe being as much as twelve percent of the project. What uh, what kind of conditions are they running into in, in Kitimat? Are they soft soft soil or hard soil or are they granite? Uh, what are they? Very soft soil. They're, they're alluvial deposits from the rivers coming down into the fjord. Um, so they're deposited material in, in very recent geological times. So fairly soft and most of it is piled. Yeah. So that would contribute to the higher capital costs that you'd see? It, it would, yeah. Okay, so um, what about other costs? And I'm thinking specifically here of the Coastal Gas Link Pipeline. So this was a project that was undertaken uh, to bring uh, natural gas from northeastern BC on the way, other side of the of the province uh, across to, uh, to Kitimat. And it ran into all sorts of political trouble because within, uh, for again, for uh, listeners who aren't aware, uh, whereas in most of Canada, there are treaties between the indigenous peoples and 
the crown that go back to the 19th century, um, there were, I think it was only one treaty in British Columbia, and most of it is unceded land. And it's very difficult to get things built there as a consequence. And in this particular case, some of the a particular community, the, Wet's, the Wet'suwet'en, were on board and some of them weren't. And it led to all some protests and delays and 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 it was yeah. for the proponent, it was difficult. And the the cost, the construction cost, the big cost inflation there from 10 billion to 30 billion dollars to get it built, and which is quite considerable. I mean, the whole LNG plant was only 40 billion, and now here you have your pipeline that's 30 billion. What role, how how badly does that inflate the costs, Paul? That, that that inflates the cost considerably. And, you know, what, what I would do is place things in context and say that there was there has been a sea change in First Nations cooperation and intertribal cooperation in uh, B.C. in the last four or five years, whereby um, I think the expectations which were raised 10 or 12 years ago, which were uh, you know, probably unreasonable in terms of developing projects and were then dashed to an extent in the fact of the numerous projects which were supposed to have been built, which didn't get built. There was, uh, I think, a, a realization in First Nations that they uh, would, would need to more cooperatively deal with these matters. I think, unfortunately for Shell Canada, at the time they presumably permitted this pipeline originally, that... That level of interaction, communication, and uh, and essentially um, uh, joint joint approaches to to the project did not exist, and you know quite reasonably some of the First Nations may not have been properly properly sort of consulted, and their feeling was that you know not being consulted meant that they they just didn't have a handle on on what on what was going to happen, what the benefits were. I can't comment on the capital cost. Uh, from my point of view, I wasn't involved in the project, but it seems to me uh, unreasonably high. Whereas, you know, I can comment on figures that we had put together in uh, an earlier time uh, for the um, Steelhead LNG project. And it, it, the pipeline of roughly the same difficulty, rough, a little bit longer, but roughly the same, a lot of it over maybe easier ground than the Twin Mountain Ranges. And uh, that was going going to be somewhere in the region as you said 10 billion and uh, but we never got to build it so who's to say it wouldn't have increased in cost but the the difficulty is the pipelines are built by mainly by the main pipeline companies in Canada and they're built uh, more or less on, an, on a no risk basis so they are uh, indemnified uh, as I understand it, it's my understanding they're indemnified by the client who wants the pipeline so if there are delays, if there are holdups, you know, they, you know whether whether the crews are working on digging or placing pipe, they all have to be paid for. Um, so your materials may remain the same cost, but your labor can just absolutely go through the roof and the equipment that's needed to lay them. So I think that could be it. I wouldn't envisage that you would see a situation of, of uh, growth of that sort again, uh, because I think issues are clearer now. And uh, shall we say the, the, that cooperation and 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 the like is nearly guaranteed before you would even embark on a project nowadays. Okay, fair enough. He said, uh, optimi he said so, optimistically. 
one of the one of the issues that I've I've struggled with um, yeah. is the the argument is made all the time that the the business case uh, for LNG uh, in northern BC is uh, is uh, fine, but it's the federal government's regulation, its permitting, its uh, environmental assessment uh, process that adds that delays things, adds extra costs and makes the pro these projects uneconomic and makes companies reluctant to take the final investment decision. <clears throat> and the problem I have with that is that that argument is trotted out so often, whether it's true or not, that you never know now whether it's a legitimate argument or it's not a legitimate argument, you know, without delving into the details of it. So I'm yeah. kind of curious as to what your take is on that claim. Well, I mean, I, I can see where it's it's simpler for people to point at something outside their own control <clears throat> in order to justify decisions to make one way or the other. Canada is a, a law-abiding country with systems in place which have to be observed. The, the issue for permitting, uh, permitting may take slightly longer in Canada than elsewhere because of, you know, the need to... Uh, run through the process with the uh, federal government and maybe some uh, uh, elements of the provincial government and of the First Nations now who are beginning to flex their muscles in relation to looking particularly at the environmental impacts. And that's fair. Um, but they all have timescales which they have to observe. Um, and, you know, with, with companies coming in, you know, I advise many companies coming into Canada that they have to allow the time. The, the issue about raising costs is not really a true, a true statement because in essence, you're not in a high spending mode at these earlier stages when you're permitting. You have to do pre-feed, you may have to do partial feeds, but we're talking about orders of magnitudes of maybe tens of millions of dollars of engineering, preparatory work, investigations environmental sort of uh, environmental surveys and the like but it's a low it's a low cost period and it's the entry cost of getting into the opportunity of working western canada western canada has massive advantages in terms of the companies who are selling the uh, the LNG and in the countries who are buying uh, because the capex is only one element of the cost of a project. And uh, in the end of the day, probably the longest tail item uh, of cost is the is the actual gas supply itself. So the pipeline and the gas coming through the pipe. Well, that, that that's an interesting question because uh, other countries, uh, Qatar and, and Australia, and of course the US have ample supplies of natural gas. And uh, as best I can tell, uh, they seem to be able to produce it at more or less the, the same cost as Western Canada. Uh, but is that correct? Is my assumption correct there, Paul? I don't think so, because, you know, funnily enough, the cost of the cost of gas is set by the market. So we've seen it. And I, I use the United States because it's a commonly known hub of, of gas. And, you know, we have we have you know, a stated price, a market move, you know, the Henry Hub price, for argument's sake, is one of the hub prices. And it is governed by supply and demand. 
So if demands are high during the winter, the cost may be three dollars fifty uh, an MMBTU. If if we're in uh, if we're in a low call time, maybe uh, in the in the sort of spring and autumn seasons, it may be two dollars fifty, and that's a that's a huge difference in terms of the cost of of uh, produced LNG at the end of the day. It's roughly roughly fifty MMBTU, um, <clears throat> fifty MMBTU to a ton of ton of LNG. So just multiply them by 50 times. Northern BC, Northern Alberta, on the other hand, the the production costs are extremely low. They're as low as they are in the Henry Hub area. I mean, it's just because they have so much experience in doing it. They're you know easily attainable. Uh, it's a very uh, low impact business from the point of view of labor. It's primarily equipment, drilling, and so forth. So the production there has... Uh, traditionally been the cost of gas <clears throat> entering the pipeline to go to the sea there has been probably a discount to Henry Hobb of a dollar to a dollar 20 in MMBTU. So it's a low, it's not so much it's a lower cost production, it's probably the same cost production, maybe even a little bit higher, but it's the fact that there's no market uh, for it at any other price. So the market is determined there. And from the point of view of Northern BC and Northern Alberta, the gas is essentially a, a, a production restriction to an extent in the fact that if you can't dispose of the gas, you can't produce any more sort of light liquids or whatever what, or whatever that may support, let's say, a, a chemical industry up in Alberta or northern BC, something which, you know, where hydrocarbons can be used for, a, a, you know, higher added value. So the, the transfer to the sea uh, is the important differentiator, and a dollar. If it's a dollar twenty differential, which is you know this is public, public uh, information. I'm sure that if you if you delved inside, you find maybe there are other discounts available. But let's assume that it's what has been held in the public view over the years. And in that case, a dollar twenty an MMBTU going to a ten million ton a year LNG plant on the coast is uh, is is basically. Um, su sufficient to build that pipeline and get the gas transferred. So you could have gas at the LNG plant at the sea fort in, in Canada at the same price as on the Gulf Coast. I, I, I'm not saying it's exactly that way around, but order of magnitude, it's not terribly different. If you can do it at $1.20. So I, I think tripling the price may not be the ideal thing, but you know, in a more, uh, in, a, in, in a more organized market, uh, for argument's sake, if the northern pipeline is built through to Nasoga Gulf with the help of the First Nations there, you might find that these costs are, relatively speaking, more towards the ones I gave you that we had at Steelhead and uh, and maybe the ones with, at the beginning of the uh, Shell project. So is it fair to say, Paul, then, that uh, northern BC is disadvantaged when it comes to capital expenditures? It is uh, advantaged in the sense that it has uh, low gas costs, and yep. so that makes it more competitive. And the so it when these things all wash out, yeah, compare it's higher in some, lower and lower in others. Do projects that are proposed for Northern BC? I think there's like eighteen of them or something that have been per permitted. Yes, there's quite, yes. There's quite a number in the queue, isn't there? And so are, are all of them, They've and I assume that, that each one that has gone through the permitting has done the business plan and knows whether it's likely to be profitable or, or not. Otherwise, why would you bother? Um, yep. And so why are they not getting FIDs? 
Well, I, I will I will give you my opinion, and this is purely an opinion, but it's based on experience of working on probably most of those 18 projects uh, as they started out. Um, I, I, I think the, the reasoning behind that is that it was just a little bit too difficult at times because they didn't have uh, the projects which were proposed uh, were working in probably a less uh, a less certain permitting environment. They were working within an environment which was seeing a fairly substantial uh, volatility in the LNG selling price. And these projects need to have nearly a, a guaranteed sort of a floor uh, selling price, not necessarily a ceiling. Everybody likes the ceiling to move up, but the floor can't really change. And uh, I think also maybe a lack of experience in operating in BC. That that I think it's it was cultural uh, and the like. So what I think is at the present time, the projects which are still proceeding at the present time, so the Cedar project with the high salination, um, the uh, project which I'm working on, which is uh, Western LNG, the Le Sims project with Niska and with other with other sort of uh, tribal and, uh, and First Nations groups uh, along the pipeline. I think they have been better thought out and they're being approached in a more um in a more straightforward way in terms of reasonable scheduling and i have every belief that those projects will hit fid uh wood fiber as well down south but that's close to labor labor centers but i have every belief that those projects have the facility to reach fid and to be built because uh, because of what we're saying here there's another element, you know, another small element, and I, I hate to look outside the boundaries of the capital cost of a plant and so forth, but shipping distances are much shorter, and that's a, that's a huge cost. U.S. Gulf to Asia is probably three times as long a shipping time as it is from Western Canada to Asia. Um, you also have the fact that the, in B.C., the, uh, the, the, most of the power is uh, a, a renewable power. And we are looking at a, an, an evolving situation where the carbon footprint of the production, uh, both you know at the wellhead and in the uh, in the LNG in the LNG plant, that carbon footprint is going to be looked on as a a, a tangible and fungible cost in relation to the buying customers. And so if I, if I that's also a game changer. We're talking yeah. about. The market is going to price emissions intensity. Yes. It's uh, going uh, to happen. It, it, it's happening already in places. Yes, I had heard that. I interviewed uh, Kevin Byrne, from, an economist from S&P Global, and he was saying sure. that on the oil side, um, it's a little bit behind uh, gas and LNG, but you're begin the market is, try is experimenting. It's, it's searching for ways. Yeah to price in emissions intensity. So low emissions intensity uh, or zero emission is, is sold at a premium uh, versus uh, high emissions intensity. Correct. So Paul, let's wrap this uh, interview up. This has been fascinating and it's it's good to get the perspective of somebody who's actually working on these projects and has the kind of experience that you do. But you know, as, as the conversation around at Energy Media has been going forward around LNG, one of the things I did is you know, and this is this is hardly profound research, but I at least looked went to the you know IEA's World Energy Outlook, and I went to BP's stats review, 
And their forecast yes. of LNG out to 2040, out to 2050, shows a, a fairly, even all, all three scenarios, because there are always three scenarios, right? And yeah, yeah. And the the scenarios, you know, there's reasonable growth out to about 2030, 20, early 2030s, and then they dip. And then they're expected to, so on the best case scenario, uh, that shows modest growth out to 2040, 2050. The the, yeah. the 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 middle scenario uh, shows a decline. And then of course the net zero one, I guess would be a very significant decline in the global trade of, of LNG. And I look at that and I go, well, you know, that's not an incredibly encouraging market outlook. And there are plenty of competitors around who are also planning, uh, you know, to bring on LNG supply. And but that's my take on it. What you know, from where you sit, uh, how what do you think of the global outlook for LNG markets? You know, over the next 10, 20, 30 years. Well, what I would what I would run with is since I joined the. The industry in 1988 with British Gas, and there was what 38 million tons a year of LNG being produced point to point between Japan, well between uh, Indonesia, Malaysia, and Japan. And we're now at a figure of, uh, ten times that amount. What we're showing is a compound growth of seven percent a year. And but there have been flattening out periods and then bumps periods and what have you. The market really dictates where it's going. With the IEA, they are operating on the best information they have from sovereign governments, from uh, large oil and gas companies, from items like that. And I'm sure that their, their knowledge base is certainly higher than mine and prob probably more accurate. However, I have sat on panels with IEA representatives and uh, have seriously argued that they're unduly conservative in their in their figures. I had expressed a figure of about 600 million tons a year of uh, marketable LNG by 2030. They said that would be by 2040. We're now approaching the situation with the current number of FIDs going on. It will happen by 2030. So that doesn't mean I'm better, worse, or otherwise. It just meant I've made a better guess. And uh, but but I see. Because of the important role of LNG in, in, uh, with intermittent renewables, the, the enabling of intermittent renewable, renewables in order to reduce the dependence on other uh, sort of carbon heavy uh, um, fuels, I, I believe that it will continue to run on that 7% rate. So I think we'll end up maybe flattening out, as you say, the 2040 to 2050 period at around about sort of somewhere between seven and 800 million tons a year. And, and I'm not saying it'll stop there. We don't know what the market will be. We don't know if somebody will invent nuclear fusion by then. <laughs> the, the, the future, the future uh, is not knowable. Uh, and uh, the best we can do is take a look at uh, the trends that we have and, and make educated guesses, some more educated than mm -hmm. others. And that's why I, I asked the question. <laughs> uh, well, look, thank you very much, Paul. This has been very insightful. Thank you. And uh, we look uh, appreciate your insights. Well, thank you very much for having me on. I'm glad that we have now a balanced view in terms of 50-50. <laughs>